I sent out a great teaser. Uh, it said this, what do these things have in common? Roots, <laughs> roots, Oprah, yoga pants, and opinions. I bet nobody knows, and so that's why you're all here, because you want to know what do they have in common. I asked this to Allie's friend who was over visiting just this morning, and immediately, I don't know why she said this, she said, oh, you're talking about Allie. That's not <laughs> what I'm talking about. Roots, Oprah, yoga pants, opinions. I don't know why she immediately <laughs> thought of my wife, but I thought it was hilarious, and I told her I'd share it. So I'm going to try to put those together for you, and... Uh, I don't know if you'll be overwhelmed or underwhelmed by how they fit together, but they will all come out in the next few minutes. So, First, I want to say this. Our society, I think human beings in general, were preoccupied by this notion, this practice of self-improvement. And so in a very orderly fashion, what I'd like us to do is when I say self-improvement, uh, Yell in an orderly fashion what comes to your mind. Self-improvement. Come on, let's keep going. These are good. Okay. Oh, tanning. I'm glad you noticed. Thank you. Okay, so self-improvement, I mean, lots of things we could say, it's our society in many ways is probably the most uh, obsessed society in the history of the world when it comes to self-improvement, but what's interesting is I don't actually think that's necessarily a bad thing, and we'll look at that today, but here's some of the things that I thought about when I thought about, man, we're so obsessed with self-improvement, right? Like, when did grandmothers having gray hair become such a bad thing? Have you noticed this? No grandmothers have gray hair anymore. It's very difficult to tell who's a grandmother and who is not. <laughs> what about this? Uh, I thought about uh, soccer moms. <laughs> soccer moms, back when I was growing up, used to wear mom jeans, right? And now guess what they wear? Yoga pants. <laughs> what is the deal with yoga pants? I think we should go back to the mom jeans. At least you know who's the moms, who's the grandmas. Then everybody else can wear yoga pants. Okay. <laughs> so it may not surprise you, uh, but this may or may not surprise you, but I actually think self-improvement, and I could go on and on, but I'm just going to stop. Uh, self-improvement is actually closely, closely tied uh, to opinion. Self-improvement is closely tied to opinion. What do I mean? If no one had opinions at all, or if we didn't know what other people's opinions were, or if we didn't even know that other people had opinions of us, I think self-improvement wouldn't be something we cared so much about. Here's why I think that. Oprah Winfrey. If you know anything about Oprah Winfrey, this woman's uh, weight fluctuated... Uh, A lot. I was going to say like a cosine, but then I was like, only Riker would get that. He's a, he's a math major. <laughs> Oprah Winfrey, up and down and up and down, and what's the reason? Public opinion. That poor uh, woman was 
the target of public opinion. Uh, there would be magazines, oh, Oprah's, you know, put on weight again, or she's lost weight, or this or that. But the public opinion is what Oprah Winfrey struggled with. And it changed how she lived because she knew people had opinions about her. Now, she's not the only one. We all struggle with this. We think about what people think of us, and it changes the way we live. So opinions matter, and they matter a great deal. In fact, opinions can help move mountains. They can motivate us to do things we never thought that we could do. Think about something in your own life where if you didn't think consciously about the opinions of others that you wouldn't have done that or that or you wouldn't have gone to school there or you wouldn't have taken that job. Good or bad, good or bad, opinions matter and they can move mountains. So I actually think that Uh, you're probably thinking, I'm going to say, don't care what anybody thinks about you. Well, I hope at the end of this, you realize that's not the right answer. Opinions do matter. But the question is, whose opinion matters most? So let's pick up John here. And I think this has a lot to do with what he's talking about today. At least when I read it, it's what jumped out to me. So get back. Chapter 2, verse 28, John says this, And now, little children, abide in him. Who's him? That's Christ. And here again is that word we talked about last week, abide, which means remain, stay close to, stay connected to. And now, little children, abide in him. Why? So that when he, that's Christ, appears, we may have, what, confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. This right here, I believe, is the purpose statement for the rest of what we'll read, and it's so important. And what does he say? He says, here's my hope, that when Jesus Christ returns, and that's what he's promised, and everything he's ever promised has come true, including that he would die and rise again, and he promised, I will come back. He says, when he comes again, here's what I want for you. And he's speaking, and he's writing this letter to the church, the church that he helped to start. He says, I want you to have confidence. And what's the opposite of confidence? It's to shrink back in shame. Two options when Christ comes back and we see him face to face. Confidence or shame. That's why John says what he's about to say. So there's something here of an urgency. John is saying, guys... Jesus told us that he's coming back, and everything he's ever said has come true. He's coming back, and I don't want you to shrink back in shame. I want you to be confident at his coming. I think it's great news, let's just remember this from the beginning, that we can have confidence when we stand before Christ. But you know what? We can also have great shame. Confidence and shame, two sides of the same coin. And this idea of confidence here, he uses the active voice. I mean, we have, we have confidence. And when he talks about shrink back in shame, it's the passive voice, meaning shame is brought upon us. And so my hope, and John's hope, is that we can have confidence in Christ and not shrink back and have shame poured upon us. That's John's hope. That's my hope. But the question is, how do we get there? What does that look like? How could I possibly have confidence 
standing before the risen Lord? Well, let's find out. Verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, again, that he is Christ, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Again, this is very important theologically. It doesn't say uh, everyone uh, has given birth of him, but been born of him. Again, the passive. We're not the ones who birth ourselves. God initiates and affects being born of him. And this idea, we see it throughout John, and we'll talk about it more today. We'll talk about it more today. So, if we know, if we know that Christ is righteous, if we know, um, this idea of know is one of, it's supposed to pop from the page. If you were reading it in the original Greek, it would pop from the page because of the type of verb that it is. Pops from the page. If you know him, do you know him? Do you know that he is righteous? Do you know that he is righteous? And then look what it says. If you know that he is righteous, then you know that anyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now here's what's happening. This is so important. If you don't hear anything else tonight, hear this. This is what's called responsive righteousness. Responsive righteousness. Anyone who practices righteousness proves that they have been born of God. So righteousness does not come first and is the cause for being born of him. It is responsiveness to his righteousness and the birth that he affects in us. Does that make sense? It's responsive righteousness and then our righteous deeds, our righteous life, our righteous actions is proof of being born of him. And we'll talk more about why that is. Of him is this idea that a, uh, that a child portrays the behavior of their parents. So being born of him means that we should look something like our parents if we're born of him. Of him, being born of him. Now, right after this, this is like this great theological truth that we are not born because we are righteous, but we are born, therefore, we act righteously because we are born of him. And then look what he says in verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And look at this. This is great. He's like almost surprised by this truth. And so we are. And so we are. It's like this outburst of wonderment that he has. And so we are. And so God has loved us this much. Look at the phrase, see what kind of love. What he's saying is this, what kind of love is this? He says, nobody would even recognize it. It's not from here. And this same construction of words is also used from asking, what country is that person from? From where are they? Many would say Australia. What kind of love the Father has given to us? Oh, Rose isn't here, is she? Well, Rose, I hope you're listening. That was a shout out to you. What kind of love the Father has given us? This is a foreign kind of love. We don't recognize it. It's not normal the way the Father loves us. 
The gospel love that Jesus shows to us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, that is not a normal kind of love. What kind of love? It's foreign. It's foreign love. Verse 2. Excuse me, let let me finish verse 1. So the reason why the world does not know us is that they did not know him, and they didn't know what kind of love. I mean, they couldn't. They couldn't place it. It was so foreign. They, they didn't know what it was. They didn't see it as valuable. And so when they see us, because we've been born of God, we're like him, they don't recognize us either. Verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But what we know is that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. So the Bible teaches us again and again, Christ is returning, and when he returns, he's not uh, coming this time as Uh, the suffering uh, sacrifice, but he's coming as the conquering king and he will enact the judgment. But we're in this waiting period which uh, theologians and scholars and pastors like me call the already but not yet, meaning he's already come and accomplished what it takes for the birth process to begin, but it's not yet consummated. So John says this, well, we're not yet what we will be, but when he comes, we shall be like him. So there's something of ignorance here. We don't know exactly what that will be, what maturity in Christ actually looks like, but we know that it will be something like him. Now, we won't be exactly like him, but like something like him. Something like him. Given new glorified bodies, new sinless uh, existence, uh, all the things of this world that we know are not right will pass away. Something like him. Something like him. Now look at this, verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This is a very interesting, this is a very interesting verse. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. But wait, Dave, isn't it true that Christ has done all the work? So why must I purify myself as he is pure? Hasn't he already done the work? In one sense, yes, but it's clear from here and lots of other places in in the New Testament and the Old that we have work to do, that we have work to do. So everyone who thus hopes in him, meaning everyone that knows that he is righteous and knows that the work Christ has done on the cross and in the resurrection, who hopes in that, that means they've experienced the rebirth that John talks about here and elsewhere, everybody that hopes in that then has something to do, which is what? Purify themselves. We must purify ourselves. Why? Because he is pure, and we want to be like him. This is so very, very, very important. This is so important. The thing that we love, the thing that we hope in, uh, drives us, propels us forward to do something. We don't just... Stay as we are. We want to improve. Why? Because we see Christ and we realize we're not there and we want to be like Christ. So we must purify ourselves. Ephesians 5, uh, which is the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus. He said this, and this is, I, I use this in premarital counseling, uh, but it's really also about the church. It says this, Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives 
as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her. And that word sanctify her is actually the same verb that John uses here when he says purify yourself. So Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her, that he uh, might sanctify her or purify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. What is, he, what is Paul saying? He's saying Christ views the church in the same way that John says we need to view ourselves. So Christ is working in and through us to purify us, sanctify us, to make us what? Holy, ready, mature, and look what it says. To present the church to himself. What does John say that will happen? We will present ourselves to Christ. Exact same thing. And Christ is working to sanctify, to purify the church. He says we must sanctify, purify ourselves in order to present ourselves to Christ. And then Paul, uh, Paul goes on to say, Husbands, love your wife in the same way, that you work for her good, for her thriving that she might become everything that she was created to be, that's part of your job. So if you ever do premarital with me, you're going to get a little bit of this. I'm going to talk about this, that it's a great responsibility to help our spouses become all that they are, that we too might purify ourselves to present ourselves to Christ. And the whole point is that there's coming a day when we'll stand before Christ and we'll either have great confidence or we'll have great shame before him. And it matters what we do here and now. Purify yourself, John says, because Christ is coming back. Okay, verse 4 to verse 7. Verse 4 to verse 7. Let me just say one thing real quick. Back up, back up. I don't want you to hear it this way. I just want to make sure you're hearing it right. I'm not saying... Jesus will only love you if you purify yourself, okay? Because you're probably saying, Dave, doesn't Jesus already love me just as I am? The answer is yes, but he loves you too much to leave you the way you are. Does that make sense? He loves you exactly the way you are. He went to the cross already for you because he loved you so much but he loves you too much to leave you the way that you are. That's love. Love doesn't just let you go and do whatever you want. Love helps you become all that you can be. So, yes, Jesus loves me, this I know. And he doesn't want me to stay the way I am because he knows I'm meant for so much more. So, we need to be very honest about what the Bible actually teaches. Yes, it teaches that Grace is what saves us, which is what? Unmerited favor from God. Meaning, we don't work, we don't purify ourselves so that we can be saved. But it also teaches that true faith, or that faith that saves, must work itself out. And must affect actual change in our life. That we must not be the same tomorrow as we were today. Because the kind of faith that saves, works. Read the book of James. He'll tell you that. By grace we're saved, not to stay as we are, but that we might become like Christ. 
It matters what kind of man I become. It matters what kind of marriage Allie and I have. It matters what kind of family that we build. It matters what kind of church this becomes. It all matters. It's not a moot point. God cares about it. Christ cares about it. He wants more for us. It matters. It matters. Purify yourselves. I mean, this is so important to get. And here's the kicker. I don't purify myself for my own pride or for my own comfort or for my own reputation or for my own salvation, but I purify myself because Christ is pure. That's the end of that verse. Purify yourself for Christ himself himself is pure. Don't purify yourself for any other reason. Don't purify yourself for religion. Don't purify yourself for self-righteousness. Don't purify yourself just out of sheer confusion about what the gospel is. Purify yourself because you understand how much you're loved and you want to be like that person that loved you like that. And that takes some work. That takes some work. But what we're looking for is love. True love drives us to work. So, verses, sorry, that was a big, let me take a step back, but we needed to, to make sure we got that right. Verses 4 uh, to 10, what we've got here, and I'll read it in a sec, are two parallel uh, accounts of the same thing. And, and John is trying to answer the question, well, why did Jesus come in the first place if he's just going to be coming back? Why did Jesus come in the first place? Answer, to destroy the hold of sin and the work of the devil. Let me read it. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practice lawlessness. And lawlessness means rebellion. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. Simple point. He came to take away sin. There's no sin in him. Because if there were, how could he take sin away? Little children, let no one deceive you. Remember last week, there are people who were teaching in in, in John's churches that it didn't matter to work out your salvation through the purification to be like Christ. They were teaching that. Don't let anybody deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Now, they're not saying you're perfectly righteous. It means you're actually practicing real righteousness. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Why? Because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. (laughs) That's a terrible rhyme in scripture. But it's true. He's been sinning from the beginning. What does he mean? He's always been like this. This is his MO. This is what he's like. This is what he's like. He's been doing this. He's been rebelling against God. It's no secret. He knows it. Everybody knows it. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's... Why he's come to destroy the works of the devil, which is lawlessness, rebellion. Verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Important there, a practice of sinning. This does not mean that if you've ever sinned, you must question your salvation. Christians continue to sin. But the practice of sinning, the habitual, the I don't care about it, that is not a mark of true Christianity. So no one born of God keeps or makes a practice of sinning. Why? Because the seed of God, God's seed, abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God. And look at this. 
This is terrifying. And who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not, is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Who does not love his brother. Twice we see this concept of according to their kind. You will act in accordance to your kind. If you come from the family of lawlessness, you will act according to your kind, lawlessness. If you come from the family of God, you will act according to your kind. Not all the time, and we'll talk about that in just a sec, but you act according to your kind. That's the general idea that John's talking about. So both of, there's two parallel accounts of Christ has come the first time to break the hold of sin and lawlessness and to throw a wrench in the devil's work. And he's done it. And you must understand that lawlessness is rebellion, that it's serious, serious stuff. Even if we don't maybe consciously think of it in the moment, lawlessness is an act of rebellion against God. So it's no small thing. We can't just brush over it. Now, Look at verse 9, and it's kind of cool. There's what's known as a chiastic structure. Josh, do you know what that is? A little bit. Josh knows a little bit. He teaches English. Don't send your kids to like Washington High School. <laughs> I'm joking, man. Oh, yeah. Okay, seniors, no worries. Look at this. Verse 9 says this. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Why? For God's seed abides in him. That's the middle of the structure. And then it says this, and he cannot keep on sinning. Why? Because he has been born of God. So it's framed by born of God. And the why is because it's God's seed. So here's the deal. Fundamentally, the reason what John says is true, that we can work to purify ourselves, that we can become as Christ is pure, is because we've been born of God. And how have we been born? Because God's seed abides in us. So I want to give you two extended metaphors that I hope stick in your brain about what this actually means and how this actually happens, okay? If you're taking notes... Now's the time we're about to get revved up because this is one of my favorite things to talk about. So the two metaphors are this, birth, born of God, and seeds. God's seed abides in us, and they're interrelated, and we'll show how, but I'll talk about both in turn, starting with birth. Have you ever heard the term born-again Christian? Do you not want to be associated as a born-again Christian? Sometimes we don't like to be associated with that term. But the problem is, it's in the Bible, and it's true. It's here twice in one verse. We've been born of God. If we act as children of God. So here's what I think being born again means. And it has to do with the name of our church, which is sedaris, which is a Latin word meaning heavenly body. I believe that the Bible teaches us, and I believe that I've experienced it myself, that we are born again of God. That something is actually born in us. Now remember, this is a metaphor. I don't know exactly how it works. I'm trying to use human language to explain a spiritual transcendent truth that God enacts in us, okay? 
So it's not like something we can manufacture. There's no pill we can take to create being born again. This is something God does. But that, he, that something actually begins to grow in us. And I like to talk about that as our heavenly body. Now, there's not a little human body growing in me. That's not what I mean. But in a sense, that's what I mean. And you know what? It starts just like every birth. Very small and weak and unable to fend for himself. And what do I do with my heavenly body? I need to sanctify it. I need to nurture it. I need it to grow in strength. I need it to become strong. Why? Because Christ is coming again and I want him to see me and say, wow. What kind of man have you become? And when he says that, he's not going to be saying that about my physical body because that's going to be either having wasted away and I've been given a new body or it's going to be old. I mean, it's already getting old. It's not going to be that impressive. So he's talking about this new self. Now, if you have any questions or confusions, email me about this. But metaphorically something is born in me and it starts just like an infant and how does an infant go from being an infant to growing up to be a man it must nurture itself and here's the problem it's hard to nurture yourself (laughs) God nurtures it but we can be smart and what does it say we come back to that word abide we must abide in Christ My wife's about to give birth to my child, and he will be an infant, and he'll have a body, and I will want that body to grow, and the best thing I can tell my son to do, if he could hear me, or I'm just going to force him to do, is to abide with his mother. Remain close to her. Get as close as possible to her. Get close to her. Why? Because she will provide the nutrients that he needs to grow, and in the same way, we must abide in Christ, stay close to him. If we think we're going to grow by wandering far off from Christ... We're foolish. Everybody knows that. Uh, we were reading about breastfeeding, and I know Allie doesn't want me to talk about this, but I'm going to. It's what's on my mind, okay? Do you know uh, America and modern people are kind of odd in that we have, like, you know, breastfeeding times and schedules and all this stuff? Back in the day, and in some cult- cultures still, I mean, that baby is 24-7 just hanging out. Just right here. They just duct tape the baby on like this, and they say, when you're thirsty, just go for it. I mean, there's no, like, there's a schedule here, you know. It's just duct tape the baby. If you're thirsty, latch on, and they do that for quite some time. I don't know, like eight or ten years old. I'm not sure exactly how old, but we've kind of created this thing in our modern culture because, you know, we got a lot of things going on, but that's the way some people still do it. Why? Abide. you got to stay close. That's where you're going to grow. That's where... You don't need to hang out with me that much now. Now, someday I'll teach you how to hunt and fish, or at least I'll call a friend that knows how to hunt and fish, and I will teach you to hunt and fish, but right now, you need to abide. You need to stay close to your mother. That's where the nutrients come from. And so, as that happens, our heavenly body, our new self, which will one day be reclothed in flesh, so flesh isn't bad here, it will be reclothed, but it's already growing. That's what the Bible teaches. We're already growing into what we will be. But we must work out. We must build up our heavenly body 
in the same way we would our earth. We've got to get to the gym. We've got to pump that creatine. <laughs> you guys still use that? College guys, are we still using creatine these days? Make sure you hydrate. So that's the first extended metaphor. Birth. We are born again by Christ and this, and this thing in us, and it's, it's not like a little human being, but it's a new self that's being born. And here's the deal. The old self doesn't just go away. The old self doesn't just go away. Doesn't just go away. And so you need to build up your new self to be strong enough, otherwise the old self will win most of those battles internally as you sort of wrestle with yourself. Man, I feel like I'm, I feel like this isn't good for my growth in Christ. But it's so hard because you're weak. You're weak. So you need to surround yourself with people of Christ that help you grow into maturity as you go from infancy to adolescence to hopefully one day being a grown man or woman in Christ. And you can actually see those people. I remember having a conversation with my friend Blair about her grandfather, about though he, his body was failing him, his spirit was alive as it had ever been. How do you explain it? He was a man of God, and his heavenly body was strong as it had ever been, even though his earthly body was weak and fading away. That's an example, and if you know anybody like that, it's an example of exactly what I'm talking about, that he was growing in his heavenly self, even while his earthly self was failing him. So, second analogy, seeds. 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 Here's the deal. Seeds are important because seeds turn in uh, to roots and root systems produce actual things that then produce fruit. And we'll talk about that. But seeds are important. Uh, but it's important before I talk about seeds uh, that I tell you that what we put, the, that what, the, what the seed of God comes into is not a blank slate. You've heard of this term tabula rasa, which is Latin for blank slate. Have you heard that? I am a blank slate. You m- might have never heard it, but it is something that is prevalent in the way we think as Western people because it's a philosophical idea uh, that's been around for a while. And the idea is basically this. We're born as blank slates, meaning... We're not good, we're not bad, there's really nothing existing there, and then just our experience and our genetics make us into the people we are. Now the question is, is that true? People like John Locke, not from the show Lost, but he was an actual philosopher in the 17th century, he talked a lot about the the blank slate, and his whole idea was that human beings are completely free, individuals are free, they're the author of their own soul, They're freed to define the content of their character. This is what John Locke said. Because we're a blank slate. Uh, Swiss philosopher, Jean, Jean Jacques Rousseau. Yeah, oh, who said that? All right. Rousseau said this, 18th century. He's one of the fathers of existentialism, which is basically what everybody lives according to, even though we have different names for it. He said this. We are our willful choices, and so he would suggest things like human beings are the ones that define for themselves or learn for themselves to be involved in warfare. What's he saying? He's saying, well, we're born with a blank slate, but then we learn certain things like war and rebellion. 
Sigmund Freud, you may have heard of him, 19th, 20th century, he would say thing. he was a little bit different in saying we're not free, but he'd say we're a blank slate and we're determined by our upbringing. That was his basic thesis. But he says we start as a blank slate and then our upbringing defines who we are. I don't know if that's bringing back any memories. But this idea and these uh, philosophers and psychologists, their ideas run rampant in our society. And so I think most people believe that we're a blank slate when we're born. Now the question is, are we? The Bible teaches, and I believe uh, experience teaches, that we are not. And so when you think about this metaphor of farming seeds and roots, here's the deal. It's not just perfect soil and we decide what we want to plant in it. We are born into a world in which there are roots and they're roots of fallenness. Roots of fallenness. And the Bible will teach us that this, these roots of fallenness, uh, of fallenness or lawlessness, they're in us from birth. We are not a blank slate because we are sons of Adam who himself fell from grace. And so we inherit those roots of fallenness. So we're not a blank slate. We don't get to just decide the content of our character, but we actually inherit roots of fallenness, roots of sinfulness. This is called original sin, and we are, from the beginning, rebellious creatures. So if the roots are bad, then what do we do? The answer is, we've got to root them out. We've got to root them out. And the question is, how do we root them out? Do we simply pull them out, and now we've got our blank slate back? That doesn't work. I, by the way, I ran all this by Will, who is our resident farmer, This is all true, what I'm saying. If you've got a problem with this, talk to Will. (laughs) Yeah, you're welcome. You can't just pull out the roots and then say, oh, my ground is back to perfect, back to normal. It doesn't work that way. Why? Because the roots come back. You can't kill them off. Even if you try to remove things from your life, there's still the seeds of those roots that are there, and they'll replant themselves again and again. So how do you get rid of the bad roots? Blowtorches. Yeah. If you've been down to Serendipity Farms in our, in our uh, Seeds of Grace uh, farming project, also known as Seed to Feed, um, you get to use a blowtorch. And you ask Will, every time everybody asks Will, is this just to kind of get me to come back because it's cool, or is this doing anything? It's actually doing something, and here's what's happening. Blowtorching weeds kills the top flamethrower, flamethrowing weeds, kills the weeds, uh, not all the way at the root, but the top, so their photosynthesis doesn't work as well. And what happens? The root system becomes weak. Now, is that enough? Can we just blowtorch, flamethrow the weeds, and then, you know, we've got a blank slate? The answer, again, is no. So what do we have to do? Well, we've created some weakness in the bad roots, but what do we got to do, Will? We've got to plant very quickly new plants in hopes that what? Their root system grows and becomes stronger than the root system of the weeds and dominates the soil, therefore making it difficult for the weeds to come back. That's the plan. And so when it says here in the passage 
listen, you've got God's seed in you. That's how you become everything that you're meant to be. This actually is a seed of grace. Secured for us by the cross of Christ. Proved true in the resurrection of Christ. And it's placed in us by the grace of God. So it is truly a seed of grace. We get one. It's in us. And we start with the right seed. 3-9. Then that seed needs to grow. And it needs to begin to form a root system. But how does it do that? We have to nurture the seed. Only if we feed the seed. And we feed the seed by abiding in him. Now think back to our birth metaphor. We need to nurture the young seed. It needs to grow in strength and maturity and complexity in its system. And as it does that, as the root system fills itself out and matures, it begins to push out the old bad roots of fallenness. They don't go away completely, but they begin to be strong and they begin to dominate the soil of our life. And then what happens? The root system begins to sprout and perhaps a tree begins to grow. And then the tree grows and it grows stronger and then at some point, fruit begins to grow on that tree. And fruit begins to grow and then we're starting to display the majesty of what we can be, right? Think about a tree. The best part of a tree is those bright fruits that grow off of it. The splendor of the fruit. So we start with the seed of God and we nurture it and we abide in Christ and it begins to grow and it roots out the old root system. Remember 1 John 4, 4, you can turn there if you want, says, He who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. The seed that is in me is greater than the seed of the world. The root system that comes out of that seed is stronger than the root system of the world and the enemy. And it begins to root it out, but you've got to nurture it, you've got to abide in Christ, and it's got to grow. And if it doesn't grow, it's losing. If we're not growing, we're losing ground. And the old roots are getting a stronghold, and the longer we let the old roots grow, the deeper, the more complex those systems of sin in our life become, and the harder it is to overcome them. Don't. Jack with the seed of grace that God's given you. Nurture it. Let it grow in the same way that we grow our heavenly body. Let the seed of God grow in us. Let it, uh, let it uh, infiltrate the soil. It's got to be good soil. You've got to tend the ground. And, and something great will grow out of it. And eventually fruit will come. Fruit will come. And the hope is, <laughs> you see, you do all this work. And the hope is that when your fruit comes, whose fruit does it look like? the fruit of Christ. And you say, I've seen that fruit before and it, it was like that Jesus character. Yeah, we're related. We're related. We're all sons and daughters of God and our fruit looks like the fruit of Christ. That is a beautiful, beautiful picture. And so we continue to grow and nurture the fruit and the tree and the roots and we hope that we produce more fruit. Now do a thought experiment with me. Close your eyes. Picture yourself like this. Are you closing your eyes? I'm closing mine so I can't tell. Close your eyes. Picture yourself walking around in the city of Seattle as a giant apple tree. Just kind of picture that. I don't know what 
kind of apple tree you are, but you're an apple tree. Hopefully you look like the apple tree of Christ. Now, picture yourself. Now, here's how it actually works. As you're walking around as a giant apple tree, that here's the deal. You're so healthy. Your root system is so good. You're abiding in Christ so much that you just can't help. But fruit is just falling off your trees because you just need to make more room for more fruit. And it's just falling off on the ground and people are seeing it. They might be confused. They've never seen fruit like this, but they can't help but maybe look at it or ask, what kind of tree are you? You're a giant apple tree walking around. If we've got lots of apple trees walking around our city, fruit will just be falling off because we're so healthy. Our root system is so strong. Here's what it's not like. This is not the plan of the mission of God. To go buy somebody else's seeds or buy somebody else's apples and then go try to pass those out for yourself. That's actually not the plan of God. The plan of God is to build a root system in you so much that just fruit's falling off of you. You're not even trying that hard. It's just happening naturally because you've got to make room for more fruit, and it's just falling off. You're not buying somebody else's seeds or somebody's fruit and then trying to resell them because you don't know how to create fruit. We all need to be creating our own fruit, and it needs to be just falling off, just so naturally that it doesn't even seem like we're trying. So we've got seeds to roots, roots to trees, trees to fruit, fruit to seed, and the cycle goes. That's God's plan. That's his mission. Here's how I know it. Matthew 7, 15, 20. Jesus says this. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by what? Guess what he says? Their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs or thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased trees bear bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear fruit, good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruit. That is a scary, write it down and read it again. Matthew seven fifteen through 20. That is a scary and a wondrous text that Jesus says they'll know us by our fruits. And when Christ returns, he'll know us by our fruit. And we'll either stand like a giant apple tree with deep roots and great, big, shiny apples, and we'll say, look at me, and we'll be very confident, or we will shrink back because we have no fruit to show for the work, for the seed God has planted in us, for the seed of grace that he's put in us. Okay, let me tell you a quick story about a boy. This is, this is the end. About a boy, a dad, and a tree, Okay? about a boy, a dad, and a tree. There was a boy, I wrote this story by the way, Josh, I'd like for you to give me a grade. There was a boy, and for years as he grew, he admired his dad. His dad was in the tree business, in fact, the apple business, imagine that, and he grew the most magnificent apple trees in the whole state of Washington. One day, his dad called the son over, he kneeled down in front of his son, and he said, son, I want you to be in the family business. He reached into his pocket and he pulled out a single seed. And then he pointed off into the distance, into a clearing, into a plot of land. And he said, son, I want you to plant and nurture this one seed. So, of course, the boy was overjoyed. He had looked up to his dad. He loved his dad so much. He wanted to be just like his dad. He said, dad, trust me, I can do it. Well, the boy took his seed and he planted it in the ground. And he knew um, 
what a good tree should look like because his dad was the best. His dad was the best. And he knew what it should look like. And he'd been taught by his dad. And he'd been given examples of what growing this tree looked like and how it worked best and what not to do. His dad's words and his examples had taught him. And so he, he took the seed and he wanted it to grow into a brilliant apple tree. So as the days, weeks, months, and years went by, because it takes eight to ten years for an apple tree to actually produce fruit, he watched over this one seed as it grew. And he wanted so bad to be like his dad. Now let me give you a little caveat. Even when the son messed up, even when he took a wrong step, or he thought he was doing the right thing, but it wasn't right, you know what his dad was doing? Every night his dad was coming and making sure that he wasn't ruining it. Because the dad cares as much that the son learns and has success in growth as he does. So the dad would come and fill in the gaps with acts of grace and mercy as, his, as the son over these years. Even when he made mistakes. Even when he had missteps. Even when he was perhaps lazy. So eight to ten years comes by and the tree has grown and it begins to bear fruit. And then the dad comes back. His son says, Dad, I want to show you what I've done. And he stands there, the son and the dad. And they're looking at the tree. And the question is, is the son confident in what he's done? Because his dad's opinion means so much to him. Or does he shrink back and shame? Dad, maybe we shouldn't go over there today. You don't really need to see that. I'll send you a Photoshop picture. Well, if the son had worked hard and he'd cared and he loved his dad and he looked up to him and his opinion mattered and he worked to get the tree, I think he could stand there in confidence as he showed his dad what he had worked so hard for all these years to do. And he'd pick one of those apples and say, see this, dad? It's just like yours. It's just like yours. Great confidence. One thing I love about this story, besides that I wrote it, was this. <laughs> the father's heart for the son was not just one tree. He wanted him to get into the family business. You don't get into the family business if it's, if it's orchards with one tree. But he knew that it would take one tree and doing it right with one tree to figure out the process that it would take to cover a whole orchard. And so he didn't give the kid thousands of seeds to scatter and just hope if we scatter enough, maybe one or two good ones will come up. He gives them one and he says, you focus on that one seed that I've given you. You let it grow. You nurture it. You make sure you do everything that I taught you. And then what's going to happen naturally is thousands of seeds are going to come from that one tree. But you got to focus on the one. You can't just start throwing seeds. For those of us who know Jesus as the righteous one, who hope in him, he is the hope, the savior of the world. If that's what we do, we've been given a seed of new birth. Something is brewing in us. We've been born again. A heavenly body is beginning to grow in us. We've got a seed that's sprouting a root system, and we need to tend to its growth. And we need to focus on ourselves we need to focus on making sure we are growing 
Because if we don't do that, we're going to be no good to anybody else. And we're probably going to teach them the wrong way to live life with Christ. So we start with God's seed. We make sure, we make sure, we make sure that we avoid the great error of yielding the wrong kind of fruit, but that we yield the fruit of Christ, that our fruit looks like his. And even though the world might not think it's that great, we can't change the kind of fruit. Even if we say we've got great fruit, but the world doesn't like it, we don't start harvesting different kinds of fruit just because people aren't buying it. We don't get complacent just because we say, you know what, demand is low and supply is great, so we don't need to work. No, we just keep producing fruit by abiding in Christ, even though the world does not recognize our fruit as valuable or our fruit as good. We keep abiding. Why? Because we're not doing it for anybody except Christ. He's going to return, and he's going to look at our fruit, and he's not going to say, how many people bought your fruit? He's going to say, let me see your fruit. He's not going to care. He's the one who takes the seed and makes it grow. He just asks us to care enough to focus on nurturing the seed he's given us. Dave, are you telling me that Christ doesn't like my fruit? Or if he doesn't like my fruit, he's going to send me to hell? No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that there's more to love than avoiding punishment. I love Allie so much. Her opinion matters to me probably more than anybody else in my life. But I don't just care of her opinion or I don't just hope she thinks the work I'm doing is valuable to avoid punishment. I do it because I want her to appreciate what I've done. I want her to love and respect what I have worked for. It's not about avoiding punishment. It's about actually caring because we love Christ. Do you care nothing about pleasing God the Father who created you? Do you care nothing about the opinion of God the Son who died for you? Do you care nothing about God the Spirit who empowers you and helps you? Have you ever thought about that moment when you'll see Christ face to face? When you meet Jesus, does his opinion of you matter at all? Do you care what he thinks when you, you, you stand before him? Does it hold no sway in your soul? Does it not, does it not bother you at all to think about that moment? Opinions matter greatly. They matter so much. And they always lead, I think, to self-improvement. That's what it seems to me. And I actually think that's a biblical concept. You might have thought, I'm going to go after self-improvement. I'm all for self-improvement. I hope you see that. Because opinions do matter, and self-improvement matters, but you need to ask yourself two questions. Whose opinion do I value the most, and what kind of self-improvement am I focused on? Seems to me that these two questions are undeniably linked, and if you claim to love God, if you claim that his opinion in your life means something, 
then I think if you don't care at all, you need to do some soul searching. I know that there's times in my own life when I need to do some soul searching. There's many times in my own life where I do not care about Christ's opinion of me. And I need to do some soul searching. And I've got to be honest with myself. Time and time again, I need to check myself whose opinion matters most and what kind of self-improvement am I doing. Friends, if the gospel is true, I believe it is, if the gospel is true, if we are truly born of God, if he's put his seed in us, if we are his children, if Jesus has laid his life down so that we might live, then Christ's opinion to us should be the only opinion that matters. And my hope is that we start living that way. Let's pray.